Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. And I'm Jennifer Waits. And today on the show, we're going to be digging into the very interesting history of radio evangelists in the very early days of radio, starting in the 1920s, sparked by our interest in a famous female superstar evangelist in Los Angeles, Amy Semple McPherson. A titan Today, of the airwaves. <laughs> a titan of the airwaves. And and recently kind of brought to attention because she's the inspiration for a character on the TV series Penny Dreadful. So it seemed like a timely time to dig into this history. Right. And our we, get- we've learned from, I'm sorry I interrupted this, but we've also learned uh, by doing our little bit of research that Amy Semple McPherson has been a part of the pop cultural imagination of the 20th century. Uh, you know, maybe maybe recently forgotten, but uh, there's been movies, there's been book characters, numerous times. Amy Semple McPherson's uh, inspirational life story has has been used uh, in in American culture. So we're going to dig into all of that. Yeah, sort of lost to perhaps the current generation, but yeah. But in the past, she was this this looming figure. So we want to bring back that that story to people who may not have have caught that story the first time around. So to help us unpack all of that, our guest today, Tona Hangen, wrote the book Redeeming the Dial, Radio, Religion, and Popular Culture in America. And she's also a professor of history at Worcester State University. Tona, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So can you start by telling us a bit about the early days of religion on the radio? I'm curious, who was broadcasting and when this all started? Well, it starts almost immediately as soon as radio broadcasting begins. Um, There are churches, individuals, um, preachers, uh, with the uh, gospel bug, who immediately recognized radio's potential to reach, you know, beyond the confines of a single congregation. And so you have broadcasts as early as 1921. Um, usually the one that's credited first is KDKA in Pittsburgh, where they are essentially simulcasting a uh, church service. Um, and then Various preachers look for ways to get on radio or to to utilize radio or to have a presence on radio. And so in the very early 20s, you have, um, again, like, you know, individual preachers just reaching out to radio stations and either purchasing time or requesting uh, free airtime to for what they see as a public service and to uh, expand their reach. So we see it, you know, really concurrent with the very beginnings of radio. It takes almost no time for religious um, religious leaders to become religious broadcasters. And was this all kinds of religion that you're hearing on the radio, you know, say in 1921, 1922? It, it is. Um, that said, those who um, were on the the evangelical fundamentalist end of the spectrum were more eager to uh, essentially to translate revival services and church worship services into the medium of radio. They seemed more eager to embrace it, um, willing to experiment with it. They see it really as an outgrowth of all the efforts that they were making using existing print and and other kinds of media to reach out to, to grab converts and to convert people. So for those who are really 
missionary-minded or evangelical-minded, um, it is that that's kind of the more natural end of it. That's right. Yeah, no, sorry. That, that said, there are you know early broadcasters in in the less evangelical churches, the, what we'd call the mainline Protestant churches and Catholic services as well. Um, the Latter Day Saints were early um, adopters, uh, creating a broadcast, and so there's. Um, I think we see it across the religious spectrum. Um, my book chose to focus particularly on the evangelical and fundamentalist end of it, but there were, of course, notable preachers for, and and other religious broadcasters in the early years from across the religious spectrum. And I need, I would like to ask, uh, just for clarity, um, how about the other religions other than Christianity? Did they have a space on the radio in these early days? Yeah, so it's a great question, and I wish I had a better answer than I don't know. Yeah. We it, it, it was difficult to find evidence of other religious uh, other religious traditions adopting radio or using it in the early years. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would love to be proven wrong. I just haven't seen a lot of evidence of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm thinking about you know so the early 1920s. Uh, it's this brand new technology. So what were those what were those early broadcasts like? And it, when you're talking about some of these revival type services, were were people trying to replicate that experience? Were they coming into a studio and doing a slice of that? Um, and what were were their capabilities of going out into the field, you know, to broadcast something live? So I, I think it it's a it's a blend. There are some studio productions where they um, essentially are are re re speaking or or redoing a, the kind of sermon that they would give in a church um, without it being a church service. So those are, um, you know, a a preacher will use airtime that way to deliver a sermon. And the purpose of those sermons, there's, you know, there's a kind of narrow band of of messages in those sermons. Um, You're going to hell if you don't repent. Um, Christ is waiting for your decision. if you're, you know, if your life is not going well, here's how to turn it around. Um, you know, those kinds of messages always at the end leading to, you know, if you, um, if, if you felt something during this service, please, uh, you know, please make a decision for Christ. So these are very, very, um, evangelical oriented, but they also, um, music was a huge part of these from the beginning. It wasn't just the spoken word, um, uh, revival Protestantism is very much a religion of the spoken word, but music is such a huge part of it. So they would often have choirs or quartets in the background um, and uh, would bring choirs into the studio or would bring the microphones to those choirs to give the full feel of a worship service, kind of weaving together the spoken word and the sung word. It, when you're talking about that, it's reminding me of um, this great episode we did with um, Lerone Martin. Yes. Yeah. Where he, where he talked about preachers on wax yes. and, and how, you know, they didn't, African-American preachers didn't have access to the airwaves. And so they released sermons on 78 RPM records. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of, um, yeah, how that intersects with your research too? Yeah. It, I, I listened to that episode. I'm a big, I'm a fan of his work. I, I read his book and I, that was just mind blowing to me to think about phonograph records. Um, a lot of the people that I had looked at, uh, all the, the people f- featured in my book are white and therefore had the access that came with 
you know, white privilege and the, their church's um, cultural power to be able to access the radio airwaves. They were considered like suitable for radio, even though they were often, um, they felt marginalized because of their religious conservatism. But the reality is they weren't marginalized at all. It was the black preachers that somebody like Lerone talks about who couldn't get on the radio and so who had to distribute their message in another format. Um, some of the folks that I looked at made uh, transcription discs of their uh, radio programs and then would mail those out. Uh, so that was a kind of syndication going on with transcription discs. For, um, people who, um, mm-hmm. for people who may not know what those are, could you explain what a transcription <laughs> disc is? <laughs> I, I, I got to confess, I've never seen one in real life, but uh, it's, it's a... It's a kind of a record format that that makes a recording of a live broadcast and then uh, sometimes on glass, if I'm not mistaken, and then those get mailed, um, they get shipped to a radio station and then they can be played on the air as a way to, to uh, rebroadcast a program. But a lot of the stuff that I looked at was, was live, and so I don't always have recordings to listen to. I sometimes just have descriptions or program notes or things like that to help me understand what programs they were offering and what they might have been saying on them. So I actually look, used a lot of print sources in trying to do research on radio in the 20s and 30s rather than recorded sound archive sources. Um, the sound archives that I did have access to were kind of few and far between. They were just like little gems when I could find them. Yeah, I was interested because before we get into Amy Semple McPherson, you'd shared some material that of hers that came from 78 RPM records. So it, it got me wondering if there were also some of these radio evangelists who were releasing records in the same oh, way yeah. that yeah. the yeah, African American preachers well, that's, did. And, yeah, and there were. one of the things that we learned from Leroy Martin when he was teaching us about this topic is that um, we, you know, he was explaining how a lot of times the the white preachers in certain markets were being offered airtime in the less desirable uh, chunks of the airwaves uh, for free, so that the radio mm-hmm. stations could fill it with you know a kind of community service that they could be proud of. That you know if they couldn't sell the that airtime, they would give it away to certain uh, to certain white preachers. Um, but we also learned that uh, that the African American preachers who were who were using uh, re- you know, recordings. who were using vinyl records to to get their messages out. We're also uh, starting to make um, or wax. Yes. Or yeah, wax good, and the good point. Yep. Um, yeah. They were making money. They were making money from this uh, from this enterprise. And I wonder how much of um, the early days that you were studying, Tona Hengen, the early days of of preaching on the radio. I wonder how many of these um, individuals are are using the the airwaves to fundraise for themselves. Right. Yeah, no, right, right. In, in part because um, conservative religious denominations uh, were shut out of that free airtime or sustaining airtime. So the emerging radio networks in the very early part of the 1920s made a collective decision to distribute that sustaining or free airtime through the, the existing channels of mainline church organizations, so groups like the National Council of Churches. And what that did was for conservative groups, it basically locked them out of mm. access to this free airtime. So of necessity, they became commercial broadcasters from the very beginning, and they got very good at using fundraising appeals in order to keep themselves on the air. So this isn't, and I, 
I mean, there's a there's a there's a sort of a stereotype of a greedy evangelist who's just like raking in the money and right. then using it to buy yachts. But um, which I would I, say, like, it comes from our lifetime. You know, we've seen a lot of TV preachers that that uh, yeah that make that that make a fortune, and you know. I, I don't right, want to name a, names at this particular moment, but yeah, but there's plenty of uh, yeah, examples can, for us. And there are contemporary. there are scandals. Yeah, yeah. there are scandals. There <laughs> most definitely are. So I think um, our present day connotation is of that commercial broadcasters um, are sort of shady or um, suspicious from the get go. But the reality is, for these very early preachers, it was expensive to purchase airtime, and they were essentially cobbling. Some of them were cobbling together. Um, uh, airtime on a series of stations that may or may not have been networked. And so they were buying airtime up so that they could be heard over a certain geographic area at a certain time when they uh, did their, their programs. And so the, the appeals for uh, money to keep themselves on the air were, were genuine, like were actually needed. And not all broadcasters were commercially successful. Those that were, though, figured out um, like like Sister Amy figured out what was what was appealing and essentially kind of you know delivered um, a, an entertainment product that that people not only um, felt was theologically uh, relevant but was also just enjoyable to listen to and so um, uh, religious broadcasting has surprising staying power on the air. Um, and in a way, they're being shut out of sustaining time, kind of honed their ability to make something that could be commercially successful from the start. You know, it's, it's occurs to me that in the early now on the radio dial in our in our current culture, it's a given that there's a certain that there are Christian radio stations. Right. Mm -hmm. the, um, mm -hmm. But were there Christian radio stations in the early days of broadcasting or was it um, sort of a it was a hodgepodge? There's. A radio that would have some Christian programming, it would also have, you know, a, a variety of other programs. Yeah. So I, if you think of Christian radio now, you think of these like really polished, you know, syndicated, um, you know, co very corporate enterprises in which uh, you have recognizable um programming that that goes throughout the week. Any Christian station is kind of like this. And there's a tremendous sameness to the way they sound. Mm -hmm. It's obviously a lot more um, experimental in the 1920s. Uh, one of the, the folks that I looked at was a, uh, an evangelist out of Chicago named Paul Rader, who was one of the very early ones. And he ended up buying time um, on Sundays from a local station that, that, that specialized in the farm market. So they would be like the livestock report and a baseball game, and then his service. And sometimes even in the same day, they would go back and forth between his programming and the programming of that station. So it was, um, uh, it was less, there were, there were few stations that were fully devoted to Christian broadcasting. Christian broadcasting made its appearance wherever they could purchase time or on networks that were more favorable to it, like the mutual network. Um, but uh, there were very few that were like full-on Christian radio stations. Now, which I guess brings us back to Sister Amy, because she's one of the very first that develops a station that's fully owned by that that religious organization, and that essentially operates one of the very first fully Christian radio stations. Wow. That's you know that that programs throughout the week 
um, from its own studios, you know, lots and lots of different kinds of Christian programming. That's It's so exciting. What, yeah, because we're going to talk about Amy Semple McPherson, who is this remarkable woman in radio history. And I just, yeah, I can't wait. I know, who we've been fascinated by on the show for so long. So we have so many questions. Uh, it's hard to contain ourselves. I'm, I'm kind of interested in this whole landscape and what was the regulatory landscape like for religion on the radio? So when Amy Semple McPherson decides that she actually wants to build her own radio station, were there rules about religion on the radio at the time? So that it's a developing story over the course of from the 20s into the 40s. And um, one of the things I write about in, in my book is how religious broadcasting became came to be seen as a controversial topic on radio, but that wasn't until the late 30s. And in part, uh, it has to do with Father Coughlin and with the lead up to World War II and kind of dangers of of spreading um, divisive messaging on the air. Right, because tell but, us a little bit about Father Coughlin if we're not familiar. Yeah, so he, he's a, a Catholic priest out of Michigan and um, began with a, a small show that, that became larger and larger until he was essentially a, um, was, was running a political party in opposition to FDR and the New Deal and was receiving tons and tons of letters from around the country. And, and over the course of the 30s, he kind of moved farther and farther to the right toward anti-Semitism and, and, you know, became... Uh, the focus of a lot of um, concern about the possible uses of radio and the the dangers of mass media in a time um, in which so many people relied on on media messaging. So, but because of course by the late '30s everybody has a radio, right? In the early '20s, that's it's not necessarily the case, right? So in, yeah. So when Sister Amy decides to start a station, hers is early. Hers is 1924. And um, in those years, she just had to to show that that like any station, she was operating under the the current uh, licensing rules of of putting out a, a programming that was in the quote public interest, convenience, and necessity. So when I was uh, researching her, I was able to to find her FCC license applications for the late 1930s, and um, in them, she is essentially making the case that she is providing a, a community and public service by providing like uplifting music and by providing like a ministry to people who are sick and shut in and and who you know are confined to their homes and hmm. um things like that so she she was making the case that her station which by then had been on the air for quite a while uh was was a, a community asset and not just a personal um you know vanity project or not just a way for her church to make money and amy Semple and mcpherson's radio station was always in Los Angeles, right? Yes. So it was KFSG. Um, and uh, it, 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 the studio was in Angeles Temple, which if you know Pasadena near Echo Park, it was this beautiful domed auditorium that she had constructed. It was really one of the first mega churches because it had a, a gigantic uh, auditorium with you know red velvet seating and and she just packed the house uh, night after night um, especially on Sunday nights she would do these grand um, 
she called them illustrated sermons. So it's kind of interesting that they were rebroadcast on radio as well, but they were very much like performance extravaganzas in, in grand Hollywood style. And she had a studio in that temple as well. And then she um, did a fundraising campaign in 1923 and 1924 to construct a radio station. And she had two towers built on top of the dome. So the dome had these like two crowning, she called them tapers, uh, there were these like steel radio towers that came out of it. And that station was in operation um, under the call sign KFSG. And as a as a as the outreach of the International Church of the Four Square Gospel, it was on the air for 80 years. That's amazing. And what I'm curious about kind of what led her, I mean, obviously, she had these visions of grandeur and building this amazing. <laughs> That's very large, ambitious, right? right. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about her radio history before launching the station and if she was on the air anywhere else and what prompted her to have her, you know, to have her own license. So she, she had the occasion to, to sort of investigate or, or hear or or learn about radio, um, you know, as soon as radio started in, in 1921, she remembers that the first time she was able to preach on the radio was in April of 1922. Uh, which was during a revival in Oakland, and one of the you know very first radio stations, the, the Rockridge radio station, gave her some free time on a Sunday morning, and it was during a um, during a the Blossom Festival. So they were broadcasting free to all these you know uh, people who were attending the Blossom Festival. So she already had the the vision of needing to reach out to big audiences. I should back up just a little bit and say that she already had some experience with with garnering big crowds. So she, her ministry really begins in about 1918 or so, and she starts she starts kind of small as a um, camp preacher going up and down the East Coast um, and preaching at revival meetings and in camp meetings in in uh, in various places, and then does a essentially a cross country tour drives her her car with gospel messages plastered on the side of the car so she's you know very attuned to how um to message to to people and then she begins doing these healing services she called them stretcher days where people who were um you know unable to walk or who were sick would show up at these meetings and uh, they were these gigantic faith healing meetings very much a forerunner of like the oral roberts uh, healing meetings that we would see in the 1950s and so she was already thinking in terms of crowds. So when she gets behind the microphone in April 1922, she remembers that she was uh, describes herself as being terrified, but then just kind of like gives herself over to the experience of uh, preaching to a virtual crowd, to a crowd that she can't see, but that she can imagine. And for her, that was really transformative. She was like, I want more of that. There, there needs to be more of this. And, and it, it, the, the times that I've found that she talks about radio very early on in, in thinking about why she might need a station, it's almost always because someone makes a human connection with her and says, your message touched me. And so um, that, and that encourages her to keep going and to, to try to think bigger about what this this medium could mean for her organization and later for her, you know, for her uh, overall movement. It's amazing. I mean, that she really was capturing the the intimacy that we talk about with radio mm-hmm. and that it's very telling, um, those quotes that you're sharing from her. I'm, 
I'm just sort of thinking about, um, so she, so she's able to launch the station. How does she fill the airtime? What sorts of programming is she airing? It's, it's a real mix. Um, if I, um, if looking at the programming information that we have, she had a, a newsletter that would go out and it would, you know, list the program guide. Um, it's all kinds of things. It's, it's church interview, uh, kind of church service stuff. It's, what might seem like sort of talk radio where she would bring in like a person from the community, a community leader or something and talk with them. Um, one of the local, uh, uh, judges had a half hour to talk about how crime, um, Hmm. you know, uh, how religion was a crime deterrent. Um, she would bring in lots of bands and choirs from all over the place. She, Foursquare Four Church had its own, you know, gigantic band and choir, but she would bring them in from the community as well. There would be then kind of more intimate uh, programs where she would just talk to you about the news and she would kind of go through the day. And there was one that was for the end of the day. And there was one that was oriented toward people who were sick or shut in. And then she had programs for children. And she even, although I never could see scripts of them, I wish I did, but she even had programs that, that were some kind of drama program, sort of like, you know, soap operas or dramas that were, uh, on the, on the secular side of the dial in those same years. Um, there were dramatic programs. I know the title of one of them was called Jim Trask, lone evangelist. And I can just only imagine, oh, wow. like, the, I know, right? <laughs> the drama of like what that guy was, you know, uh, uh, how these were performed. And they ha- um, have to in, have been live. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, she's, she's filling the airwaves with all kinds of, oh, the baptismal service, I should say once a week, they broadcast the baptisms that were going mm-hmm. on, which must've been fascinating to listen to the big Sunday evening spectacles. Again, those illustrated sermons, those were simulcast. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know if that even exhausts yeah. all, the, uh, all the, all the different ones, but you can see she was super creative in, um, generating lots and lots of different amazing. kinds of programming all from the same station. Don't. Tona Hangen, you are a professor of history at Worcester, and you have written the book Redeem- Redeeming the Dial, Radio, Religion, and Popular Culture in America. And we are focusing today on Radio Survivor, mostly on Amy Semple McPherson, who was a woman who built a radio empire uh, of, of her own based on her, her, her sermons and her church there in Los Angeles that you just let us know was on the air for 80 years. And uh, do we know... It, did Amy Semple McPherson run the radio station and the church, or did Amy Semple McPherson hire some radio staff? Uh, it's amazing to think about programming. We know that the the radio wasn't on twenty four hours a day back then, but um, no, right, right. It sounds overwhelming to think of of programming a radio station and having your own church. No, she, right. She had a whole staff and, and it wasn't just the radio station and the church either. She had a huge soup kitchen. She had one of the largest relief organizations going, uh, private relief organizations in Los Angeles during the Depression. Um, and she had a Bible college uh, that was one of the you know early ones there that's still around. And um, so, you know, she this was not just a not just a small ministry, she had great ambitions for it and really built more than just a media empire. She built really a whole religious empire there in Los Angeles uh, and really made it her home. It's kind of mind-blowing just, I mean, also thinking about a woman during this period of time um, creating a business like this. Um, totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 
And did you come across, did she have any pushback? I would imagine she would have. Well, it's, it's interesting. She, she had this, yes, there was, there was some pushback. She was seen um, by some who were even more fundamentalists. She was seen as a little bit worldly as, um, you know, a little bit of a showboater as a, as a performer. She was, uh, she looked fancy and uh, there were, you know, there were, prohibitions in the fundamentalist world against too much worldliness or uh, silk stockings or bobbing your hair or things like that. And she kind of embraced all of that at the same time that she was also running, you know, a, a, a ministry that had um, a, a very conservative theological bent. So she managed to walk that fine line. And there's very few um, people in the Pentecostal world in those years who were able to do that to the degree that she was. That said, um, Pentecostalism has has uh, has made place for a wider variety of voices, and a, you know, and and has embraced women's religious leadership in a way that some other denominations didn't. And so there was the ability in Pentecostalism, which was a, a new religion in the early 20th century, uh, to to amplify women's voices in a way that really wasn't there for super conservative Baptist or Lutheran and, denominations, for example. And what about Amy Semple McPherson's uh, voice on the radio? It just, you know, regardless of the religious message, just the, um, I, I, I am assuming based on work on Radio Survivor and previous guests and topics that we've had that Amy Semple McPherson's voice as a woman uh, on having her own station was really um, unique at that time in the yeah. 1920s in America. Yeah, it really was. It really was. And um, but, you know, she this is a, a combination of like determination and uh, and the and the ability to like to generate popularity from crowds. I mean, this is essentially listener-supported radio, if you want to think about it that way. And uh, people loved listening to her. Mm-hmm. She was, she had a magnetic, charismatic presence, both in person and on radio. So in, in, in some ways, maybe it's possible that, because we know that at, at a certain point, women's voices were, were sort of excluded from, especially mm-hmm. the national radio broadcasts. And it became, it became, you know, a uh, common knowledge that that men had the voice for radio and women didn't which is ludicrous but here's amy semple mcpherson in the early days um being being a woman on the radio i was listening listening to the recordings that you shared with us and our heavy laden and i will give you rest come 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 like chiming bells at evening tide This word rings out all through the Bible. Come in Genesis. Come in Matthew. Come clear through to the Revelation. The word predominates, rings like bells, sweeps as the tones of a mighty harp, peals like the thunderous notes of a great and a glorious organ. Come. It is the invitation from the loving heart of a loving God to a poor, lost, tired, sin-stricken world. Come, come unto me, all ye that are weary. And but heavy here's Amy Semple McPherson in the early days um, 
being being a woman on the radio. I was listening listening to the recordings yeah. that you shared with us, and it's just remarkable just to hear uh, a woman's voice in the early part of the 20th century uh, speaking into a microphone yeah. for the radio. Yeah, and she has that you know that very precise elocution. She trills her R's. It's very musical. It's very unlike broadcaster you know, kind of broadcaster uh, drama speak or broadcaster um, announcer speak. Yeah. And um, yeah, but I think she, I think those recordings convey the way that she sounded in person um, and, and what, um, what just, they convey the way that she sounded in person and the way that she, uh, that she uh, drew people in with, with her method of speaking and with weaving in music. And the audio you shared with us, how did that come to be recorded? Do you know the backstory? Unfortunately, I don't. At the time that I was doing my uh, my dissertation research that turned into the book, that was I was working on this project in the late 1990s, and I, I tapped into a uh, you know the underground collectors network, and there was a lot of cassette tapes being mailed to my house from kind people who had stuff in their collections. I think those recordings came from International Church of the Four Square Gospel. Like they were they were tapes that you could buy in their in their gift shop of like old recordings that they had. And they don't have an extensive archive of of her materials. Her her papers are not um available as an archival collection and they really don't have a large um collection of what those those early uh things sounded like. But I did come across just a couple of recordings that actually had her voice. And it makes such a difference because, you know, I, I, I had looked at so many pictures of her and I had read her words. She published an autobiography and a lot of her sermons were reprinted. And, and, and she was the, the voice of the newsletter, which was called The Bridal Call, which is a really interesting idea that she that there was a kind of um, femininity or, or uh, uh, you know, the aspect of like um, the, the bride of Christ. And then to hear what she actually sounds like on the air, it's just so engaging. It really is. And I mean, as I was listening, a lot of it felt really saucy to me, too, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, with some double entendres. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't want to project, but I heard that as well. <laughs> no, I well, think I've... that's fair. Yeah, she she presents herself as very feminine, right? Very like, you know, there's there's an, a, a, there's an aspect of kind of teasing about um her persona as as like a mature woman, um, you know, she's she's not childlike in these at all. She's very present and embodied. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, is your sense that um, that that her radio, what you heard on the radio, was similar to her sermons? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she was utterly the same, utterly authentic in both settings. And um, yeah, I think what we, what we hear on the radio is really because the 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 station itself was just such an extension of her physical presence and was really hers in the years that she was, that she was, uh, at Angelus. It's yeah, it's, it's just an amazing story. Um, and I know, so we've heard that perhaps she had some interactions with what would later become the FCC with the federal radio commission. What, what happened? Yeah, yeah, because the story that Lerone Martin shared with us on the previous episode was that uh, she she made her station so big and so powerful that the government was uh, had to step in to uh, to to reduce the strength of her of her radio reach. 
I think it's a wavelength issue instead of frequency dispute rather than a size dispute. So I think what one of the issues was that uh, in those years, um, some stations would remain silent so that you could pick up stations broadcasting elsewhere on the same frequency. But it also meant that stations might uh, adjust their frequency and, and might in other words, wander from the assigned frequency that uh -huh. they had been granted. And so I think that was the to issue that came listeners. up was that she was <laughs> yeah, that she was accused of wandering from her assigned frequency. Okay. So there's a very famous, it gets reprinted a lot, a very famous quotation that uh, of a telegram that she um, presumably sent to, to, to Herbert Hoover, the Secretary of Commerce. Um, we don't have a date for this, and, and the actual telegram does not exist in the National Archives. Archivists have uh, been requested to track it down, and they can't. But here's what it is supposed to have said in Hoover's recollection. It was something along the lines of, please order your minions of Satan to leave my station alone. You cannot <laughs> expect the Almighty to abide by your wavelength nonsense. When I offer my prayers to him, I must fit into his wave reception, open this station at once. So, yeah, she was sassy to the to the regulators um, in saying that, you know, my the, my purpose in broadcasting is way bigger than your regulation. And it's a, and this is a time period in the United States where. Um, I mean, radio stations, there were no rules at the beginning of, of right, radio. Right. People built. Right. You know the the technology existed, and they built stations to fill the void. Um, yeah. So so in in some ways, I, I'm assuming this is a beginning of of the history of of regulation of the airwaves. Yeah, and like I said, she became she learned to become a lot more diplomatic, and her license was never denied. And in those applications, year after year, she would say um, all the educational benefits that she was bringing because of her station, and that she was making um, uh, you know an, a musical impact in in the greater Los Angeles area by bringing you know like talented artists to the air and so on. And so they were uh, we were making the she claimed they were making live musical performances instead of doing recorded. Ones. And so there, there was this, um, she made lots of efforts to um, to emphasize the moral benefits of her station to, to the city of Los Angeles. And what do we know well, about I'm, the reach of that station at oh, that yeah. time? That's what I was going to ask. Like, who is who is the audience? Because it, it certainly sounds like you're talking about, or that she's talking about her audience being really all of Los Angeles and everyone. But is it bigger, oh, and bigger than that? Is it yeah, and bigger than that. Yeah, it's a 500-watt station. And so, again, depending on, like, the time of night and what, what whether other stations in other cities are being silent, um, her her the reach of her station was pretty wide, and she would get letters from all over, uh, all, at least all over the West Coast anyway and, and in the Pacific. Um, so, yeah, lot, lots of people heard her station, found it... Um, compelling and uplifting and reached out to her and said, you know, keep going. I, I want to yeah. support, all, support what you're doing. Can you put and a you finer a point on that? When you say all over, is it really mm -hmm. like half of the United States at that time? Uh, I mean, I, again, the West I, I think, coast, smaller yeah, back then. Right, right. I think as a, again, as a 500 watt station at that time, again, depending on the, the time of night and how far it would carry, I think you get these, um, you know, and it's a little bit like DXing, right, where you can sometimes hear a station much farther than its reach is supposed to be because of the way it reverberates right. around the atmosphere. Yeah. So so I think, um, you know, she's always pleased to see people writing from far away. So it really it's it, although the the temple itself was in Los Angeles and lots of people could come in person and she would, again, pack that auditorium every week. 
uh, it was also the case that she was um, always delighted to see that her message got much farther. And I should also say, too, when she traveled to other cities, um, she became one of the celebrities of the 1920s, right? The 1920s is an era of like this emerging idea of the celebrity. And she's one of them just on the religious side of it. And so she would go to other cities. And when she did, she would send out a whole press kit ahead of time and say, make sure you book time for me on local radio stations. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all of this has me thinking that she, I'm thinking about audience and who's tuning in. And it really sounds like she's speaking to, to all sorts of people and and possibly people who who might not even be religious is that mm-hmm. is that right like who is who are the actual people who you think were listening it's so hard to know i yeah. mean i you know I, I i know that she would have liked to think that that there were lots of people tuning in who weren't of her faith um or who didn't you know who didn't might not even be religious but just appreciated hearing you know good music or just thought that it was entertaining to listen to um but all her messaging around it, again, and I'm getting this from her own print sources, from her newsletter and so on, all of that, all of her intention is poured into sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like for her, that's really what it's all about. It's not about growing a media empire for its own sake. It's about evangelizing the world. And that is still the mission of the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. I mean, it is, it's still around. Huh. It's still... Uh, it's still um, working on the the long term project of evangelizing the world before Christ comes again, and that's really her intention. All um, it, at its core, this is this is a, a ministry to the world, uh, and then uh, it is also um, the representation of a vibrant local congregation in Los Angeles, and and again, one of the, like the first real true megachurches. And is that unusual? Um, was that unusual at the time to be trying to speak to the world in that way if you were if you were a preacher on the radio? No, not at all. Uh, and and again, it's an extension of the evangelistic m- motivations and ambitions of that that end of the religious spectrum. I mean, they truly believed that it was their responsibility and calling and opportunity to spread the gospel around the world and they're looking for every possible way to do it. And as soon as radio comes along, like, Oh, this is, this is one of those ways we can do this. This is God given for us to be able to do this. In fact. And how often, so we're talking about the 1920s and I, I just, I, I, it might be difficult to answer this question. It is difficult. I'm sure. How often was Amy Semple McPherson on the radio? Like, did she sit down in front of the microphones for the better part of each and every day and speak to her audience? I don't know. It, it's a, it, it's hard to know. Um, I know that I'm looking at uh, here at, at my desk while we're talking, I'm looking at her FCC application for the late 1930s. And she lists program programs and the times that they aired every night of the week from 7.45 p.m. to midnight. Now, whether she's doing or directing or speaking in between each of those programs, some of them are musical programs, it's like, it'll say like piano and vocal or like the such and such trio. And whether she's doing the DJing, so to speak, between those programs or whether someone else is doing that, it's not clear. But I know that she was, you know, heavily and 
and um, consistently involved in that in that station and really was its voice. It, it's it's not clear to me that she had other people speaking on the radio very often. I think she was mostly the voice. And what do you think her legacy is on the radio today? I mean, it seems like she must have had a, a huge influence on where religious radio, you know, what shapes it took over the radio. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think that her legacy today is, um, again, one of the, the few um, female religious media empire builders and really paves the way for others to do that. Although, you know, to be, to be uh, realistic about it, the next uh, leaders of the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel have all been men since then. So it, her religious empire kind of passes out of the hands of, of uh, confident women, although women are very present in that denomination. They're, they're, not, they're not the president as she was. Um, but I think that it, it uh, helps grant visibility and legitimacy to uh, conservative radio voices, and that, um, that has certainly carried forward. That carried forward through the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then on into the era of televangelism. So her being a pioneer like that in the very early years, I think, is, is really important uh, ground laying for what comes later. And have we seen another female evangelist like that on the radio? No, no. Um, you know, there are, uh, again, it's not like women's voices are absent in, in conservative Christian radio, but we've never seen another Sister Amy, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, she wasn't just a voice, but she was also like the, you know, the CEO, if I'm not if I'm not speaking, if I'm not giving too many labels, like I'm, th- yeah, no, I'm, I'm thinking about right. Oprah Winfrey, if Oprah Winfrey mm. owned a radio station... That's Amy Semple that, McPherson of the 20s and 30s. Ah, that's that, an interesting parallel, yeah. I, I really like that parallel because I think of Oprah's O magazine and, um, you know, all the spinoff programming, and then she's a behind-the-scenes producer for lots of other media. So, yeah, that that's a really fair analogy. Yeah, I like that. Um, so I want to ask a little bit um, about kind of the direction that religious radio takes because I know you've written a lot about that too. And I was struck by... I also wonder, I want to put a, put a bug, a bee in the bonnet and mention that Amy Semple McPherson's life story gets um, a little bit uh, soap opera-y and I want to get a question in before, before the end of the episode, but, but finish your more, (laughs) finish your more on topic question. Yes. um, Well, you wrote an article where you're talking about, um, you know, some of these shifts in radio and how in the early days, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of these sermons on the radio were speaking to a mass audience uh, of believers and non-believers and how you saw a shift at some stations mm-hmm. where people were speaking more to the believers. Um, so I, yeah, I wanted to see if, if you could just talk a little bit about that shift. Yeah, I, I, I do see that happening. And again, it's not that evangelicals abandon the project of evangelizing the world or speaking primarily to non-believers or trying to draw people in and get them to make, uh, you know, a, a crucial religious decision. But I do see that they recognize over time that there's a place for media that nurtures the believers, that preaches to the choir, so to speak, and that that Um, We really see that by about the middle of the 1940s, and I think that that has been 
uh, a lot of the aim of televangelism and internet, um, you know, uh, uh, Christian broadcasting as it moves into digital environments. A lot of that is is oriented at um, uniting a far flung evangelical community that feels itself to be marginalized in society. And so it's like um, connecting threads of people who feel like they are, uh, you know, islands in a hostile world. And that becomes a really important part of the messaging of uh, the Christian right in the 1970s and 80s and on into the era in which uh, evangelicals become an an impressive political force. So what, what I found interesting was the time period I was looking at from 1920 up to the mid-1950s or so, um, religious broadcasters, despite sometimes being considered controversial, actually were very, uh, actually avoided political messaging for the most part. And they were, they were not yet a lobby. They were not yet, um, uh, you know, a moral majority as a kind of political force that the, the political parties had to reckon with. They were primarily um, focused on the project of evangelism. And then I, I see it shifting as we go through the 1940s that they really see uh, the role of, of media as knitting together an extant community of believers. Yeah, that's a really interesting shift. Um, and Eric, so Eric, we'll let you ask your scandal question now. <laughs> yeah, because I have no idea what the what the next question would be about. You know, here on Radio Survivor, we have not yet talked about the role of of Christian uh, you know, politically right-wing Christian broadcasting on mm-hmm. on the airwaves, and I don't today's maybe not the day. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh Amy Semple McPherson's life story um becomes its own uh, very novelesque, you know. They, I, I didn't know about this film, but they made a film of her life story. Um, what do you know, Ta- Tona Hangen? You wrote a book, uh, "Redeeming the Dial: Radio, Religion, and Popular Culture in America." You've studied Amy Semple McPherson. How many of these um, soap opera-like details are true? <laughs> Well, she was married several times, which for uh, people in the conservative religious world was in itself notable in the 1910s and 20s. Um, She, although for a lot of the time that she was building that ministry, she was essentially a single mother. And that was, you know, like, kind of like raise an eyebrow there. Um, Yeah, it's a big deal for any woman in the 20s, not just a woman who, you know, runs a radio station and a megachurch. Right, right. So uh, she was she was widowed very young. She she married um, a Pentecostal preacher essentially as a teenager, and they went off to China to you know convert China. And he died there of dysentery and malaria, and she, you know like abandoned her in Hong Kong, eight months pregnant. And so she came back home and and worked for a while, and then married a, a grocery salesman. And that marriage lasted a little while until she felt like she was really truly being called to evangelize and essentially left her husband and went on the road. And so when she arrives in Los Angeles, she uh, is not married. And, in the early um, 1920s. Has, in the early 1920s and has these two kids and her mother is along to, to give an uh, air of respectability. And um, so she uh, uh, is... Um, you know, uh, has, has this like, again, dramatic rise, uh, as, as a powerful single woman building this business and this religious organization in LA. In 1926, she, uh, May of 1926, she disappeared. 
And um, she was gone for about five weeks and then reappeared just as a memorial service was going to be given uh, that uh, she was missing, feared dead. And she reappears and it's not clear what happened. This, there is, when, are, this is after she's a radio celebrity. So yeah, her, yeah, that's her, right. Her disappearance, people notice. People notice that she wasn't there anymore. Right, right. And there was, the, you know, there was this big search for her and they like, you know, dragged the water and all that. She disappeared from a beach while swimming. And, um, but she reappeared and, uh, it, it got, it, be, the scandal became larger and larger over several months until there was a grand jury, uh, hearing to see if she had perpetrated a public fraud. And the accusation was that she had, uh, taken some time off to be, to conduct an affair with the radio engineer of the station. And, uh, this is, this is not, um, it's not proven. Like we, it's, it's actually hard to figure out what yeah. happened in those weeks and, and what was going on. But it certainly contributed to her moving from the just the the radio programming part of the newspaper to the tabloid part of the newspaper. It's, and it's, it's uh, all the imagine, details were aired. Yeah, in, e in, in like salacious detail. Right. It's easy to imagine right. that it could be true. But I also we also know that women in power have stories told about them in the mm -hmm. newspapers that are that are not verified because people, you know, people like to believe those stories. And so it's, uh, it's fun. I, I, it's like, we could, we can decide what to believe, I guess, about Amy Semple McPherson. Well, yeah. And, and Tona, do you think that, you know, because for most of this episode, we've really talked about these incredible achievements of this, of this woman, this businesswoman. Um, but when most people hear the name Amy Semple McPherson, they might think of all this salacious, scandalous I certainly do. Yeah. material. Yeah. So, it's is that unfortunately has that unfortunately um caused people to not really appreciate her legacy yeah i think that's that's fair to say and i think that uh to to really grapple with the complexities of a woman like her with uh the the power and presence that she had um it's not enough to just look at the gossip columns. I think we have to look at, uh, you know, the business columns, and we have to look at again the the incredible persistence of her station and the fact that her denomination is still going. And she was not just a flash in the pan, and she was not just you know a uh, you know misguided soul, um, but uh, she was a you know a determined and and focused. Um, woman who truly felt like she had a mission and a calling and yeah on the side she had a very complex personal life um that she wasn't she was estranged at the end of her life from from her mother and her daughter and you know it, it was it was in uh, in some ways a really uh dysfunctional family um but she always was trying to weigh that against the the reason she felt like she was on the earth, which was to preach the gospel, and that she had a particular gift to do that. And she died at a really young age, which, I mean, it was amazing to hear that and then think about all that she accomplished in her life. Yeah, she she was, well, I don't know, we consider really young. She was buried on her 54th birthday, but uh, yeah, it's sort of in, in the prime of her life, let's say. Um, she died of an overdose, which again, I think contributed to uh, gossip about what what might have been happening. She the, the official story is she died of a of an overdose of a sedative that she had a kidney ailment, um, and uh, that was in 1944. And I should say that at the time that she died, she was um, in active negotiations to uh, start a television station, and that would have been one of the very first television stations in Los Angeles had it had it come to pass. 
Wow. So a real a real visionary well, as far mm-hmm. as media. And we have here, I should mention that uh, Amy Semple McPherson, we know, was the um, was a character in Sinclair Lewis's, or based, you know, Sinclair Lewis based a, a character on her in Elmer Yeah, Gantry. Sister Sharon Falconer. Mm-hmm. We have uh, another character in Nathaniel West's The Day of the Locust, which I'm going to read mm-hmm. again now, knowing that uh, Barbara Stanwyck played a character based on her in Frank Capra's film, The Miracle Woman. And yep, from 1931, was, while she was still was still actively yeah. in the ministry. Yep. And there was a movie in 1976, uh, The Disappearance of Amy. And now, uh, here in the year 2020, there's uh, this Showtime series, the the Penny Dreadful uh, Los Angeles thing. And Amy Semple right. Fiction is back, is back yeah, on TV. Yeah. Sister Molly, Sister Molly Finister, um, who is uh, the the voice behind the Joyful Voices radio program in Los Angeles, and and also the who runs a soup kitchen, and um, you know is a is is a real presence in the kind of down and out section of Los Angeles. Yeah, it's a funny story because we, you know, Jennifer and I learned about Amy Semple McPherson in real time on the episode with Lerone Martin when he when he told us the story, <laughs> and we were like, hey, tell who what is that name, and then. Uh, you know, months later, I just saw the Penny Dreadful uh, promotional trailer, and I just knew that that was Amy Semple McPherson's presence. Like, just yes. in the she's, in the shot, I knew back. that they yep. were uh, were sampling her her visage. I suppose is how you could put it. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, and they and they definitely portray Sister Molly as this warm character. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think likes likable and 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 a, a little bit manipulated by a cold, calculating mother. It looks like, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, it's kind of not not as forthright a personality in her own right as as she was in real life. Yes, yes, the picture you paint of Sister Amy is, I mean, a force to be reckoned with. Yes. Yeah. it's yeah. it's pretty amazing, really, to think about all that she accomplished during that period of time. Yeah. I just, For sure. I just imagine that, um, yeah, we were talking t- on today's episode of Radio Survivor about the the possibility that Amy Semple McPherson's radio audience, uh, A, might have been believers who were appreciating the gospel that she was preaching, but also just might have enjoyed the sound of her voice, like a woman's voice speaking to the radio. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm just making up a story now, like, you know, at night, uh, there she is. And maybe I am remembering Nathaniel West's uh, version of the character. That um, it's a very warm radio presence. Uh, yeah, in the 1920s. Yeah, that's uh, we can definitely say that. Tona Hangen, you are a professor of history at Worcester, and your book "Redeeming the Dial: Radio, Religion, and Popular Culture in America" features many preachers uh, who whose work was on the radio, as well as Amy Semple McPherson. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the radio edition of Radio Survivor, and we look forward to talking with you more um, in our podcast. Uh, version which is coming right up thanks so much so i'm curious since you've covered a a broad range or you know a broad period of radio in your work and and this question has been asked of other people about different types of radio do you think there's a golden age of religious Hmm. radio um well i I think there's maybe gold platinum and silver there's uh there's certainly different ages of religious broadcasting um, I think during what we often call the golden age of radio, there was also religious broadcasting that provided a different, um, you know, a different uh, place on the radio dial, especially for people who, um, 
especially for people who wanted, who were hungry for religious messaging. So I think that there's, um, while I've, while we've talked uh, in this episode today a lot about the variety of Sister Amy's programming, uh, the reality was that most of the programs I looked at tended to to fall into a formula of being very sermon based, often um, explicating the Bible uh, and um, including a lot of what they called gospel music. Now, it's different from African-American gospel music, but it's uh, what they would call the, the music of old time religion. So what they mean by that is revival, revival hymns. And um, the, um, the, the, the clips that um, from Charles Fuller's program, the old fashioned revival hour are really exemplary of this. Like that was a hugely successful program in the thirties, uh, forties and fifties. And the quartet with like this galloping piano behind it is very typical of that of that style of evangelical broadcasting. And so that is in its own way a golden age um, of kind of uh, coalition building and um, and taking the existing American folk art trope of live revival services and making a place for it on the radio. And then I think things shift when we get into the 50s and forward when television comes along and, ra- and so does FM, right? And radio becomes more, um, more formulaic and uh, a lot of this religious content migrates to the AM dial. And so for, um, for, for decades, you could, you know, driving across the country, you could just keep your AM dial tuning to various uh, preachers. And a lot of that's, and, and not to mention the religious components of Border Blaster Radio, which is its own, you know, history in the 60s, 70s, and so on. So I feel like that's a second golden age in which um, they began to really flourish on the AM dial at the same time that that also began to invent the genre of, of Christian radio and, and later of contemporary Christian radio, which is kind of music worship based with these, um, uh, you know, recognizable names dropped in throughout the program day. And so, um, and that I think is the, as in the current era uh, from the kind of uh, Rush Limbaugh and James Dobson era forward is an, is, is a third golden age um, that bleeds over into digital um, digital formats as well into internet formats. And that, I think the effort in each of those times has been to really, um, again, invite people to join this movement and, or to, to genuinely feel something, uh, to, to perceive a, a religious gap or need in their life and then to take some action about it. And it's also to just kind of nourish the everyday religious practices and rituals and devotional behaviors of believers so that in an increase as they see it in an increasingly like hostile and you know wicked world um, as we tumble inexorably towards the second coming of Christ and um, that there is a place for their worldview and so it's a, a kind of comforting almost a security blanket function I have to ask again uh, about um that transition, though, because I mean, here we are speaking in the year 2020, and it's um, it's difficult to it's difficult to to feel um, agnostic about about you know Christian radio in the in the time of Trump. And so, uh, yeah. when did that when did that change happen? When did it become a political force in America as opposed to um, simply religious? Well, I think we can thank uh, Jerry Falwell for that. 
And uh, so that really comes along in the 80s, uh, in, in, the, in the Reagan years, with the uh, moral majority and those organizations and the, um, uh, the reinvention of the Christian right as a powerful political force. Um, but, and that's, and I, I guess I kind of like want us to think of that as one thing and then to set that thing aside and recognize that there is a whole subculture of evangelical broadcasting that's not, that's, uh, that is oriented toward keeping believers connected to each other and to the causes that they feel are important. And yes, that, 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 um, subculture has been, um, co-opted and pandered to and uh, kind of trotted out like a show dog and um, has, uh, I think, really debased itself with its association with Trumpism. But uh, it, it, um, there's a, that shift is, is more recent. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering and, if there's anywhere, I'm making up a redemption story out of, out of whole cloth, uh, but is there, are there examples right now of Christian radio that, um, is uh you know demonstrating uh a, a like uh caring for immigrant rights which is a significant you know group of americans uh, who believe in in christianity yeah yeah right right so the, so i think we do see um even if we just look at the conservative end of the religious product of the protestant religious spectrum um even there there is lack of consensus about how to respond to, for example, increasing diversity in America. So um, there is, uh, you know, there's a subsection that fear mongers about immigrants, and there's a subsection that's like, hey, Christ called us to reach out to people regardless of uh, their color or their country of origin just because they have needs and just because we have Christian charity. So Is that a business? I mean, not a business, but is that a, a, is that like a, is there an ownership distinction between those two messages? Or am I am I digging too deep today? Uh, I, I don't know. I you'd you'd want to get a different expert on yeah, to. We'll do that question. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. yeah. No, I'm asking and, you and questions I, that I've been dying to ask somebody on Radio well, Survivor for five years. Well, fantastic. Let's yeah. keep asking those questions because those questions are really important in our moment. And I think understanding the actual contours of the current religious landscape is super important. It is something not to be, not to ignore. Um, but my own research doesn't extend up to the present so much. And I, and I got to confess, um, as my research interests has moved, have moved on, um, I'm not a, a devoted follower or listener of the current right world of Christian broadcasting, though I, you know, though I appreciate where its historical roots came from. Can I, can I take it back to another history question then? Sure. Um, so you mentioned a really fascinating sounding script um, that Amy Semple McPherson had for some sort of serial radio drama. Oh, I wish I had a script. It's not, I don't have a script. I just have the title, the show the title. title. The show so it's, title. It's, it's, it's so, it's so tantalizing. Yeah. We, we can imagine the script. Say the title okay. again. I have I have three titles of programs like that that I think were dramatic programs. One is called Useless the Studio Janitor. <laughs> so I think I, I I don't know. I imagine like Call the me. janitor's like kind of maybe or kind of cleaning up after the show and did, like did you say his name was God. Useless? I have no idea. I have no idea. Useless? And there's one called Useless the Studio Janitor. Useless. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Let's check it. And then a, one, a little I bit of know. shade about so it's um it's kind of a a meta 
it could have been a meta type yeah. drama about studio drama. I I wonder. I have no idea. And then uh, the one is called The Red Comet, which makes me think of The Green Hornet, but I don't know that it's a superhero show. I don't know. Right. But and it then, would have been at the time there were other yes. there were other radio dramas at that time that had superheroes. Right. Right. And then uh, the one I mentioned earlier is called Jim Trask, Lone Evangelist. I love that. I know, right? <laughs> so I so know. I, I don't know. I don't have. I I wish we knew what those shows were like, but I don't. Um, when, when I was reading your article, one of your articles, you talk about the Lutheran Hour mm-hmm. and and that they were starting to wonder about different formats and mm-hmm. if things like drama could be more effective. So I'm curious if you could explain more about that, about how religious broadcasters were thinking about radio drama and how they were using it. Well, again, I, I don't have a lot of examples to draw from. I, I don't have a lot of scripts or recordings. To, so it's a little bit of guesswork on my part. But but as you say, I feel like there was uh, room for experimentation. And as they were looking at what were the successful genres on secular radio, including even game shows and, you know, variety hours and things like that, wow. I think they were looking to make religious counterparts for each of those and to try them out and to see if that was another way to... Uh, kind of share and connect. I know um, when I was looking at Paul Rader again, going back, like back again to the late 1920s, um, he developed shows for teenage boys and for teenage girls, and to kind of like, you know, uh, uh, summer camp them into enthusiastic uh, membership. And and so um, I think you know the the work of evangelizing the children of believers goes back to the Puritans and the halfway covenant. And it is uh, an ongoing project of religious groups to hang on to the new generation. And so you've got to stay current with whatever kids these days are doing or listening to. And so I don't think it's any different from religious organizations today looking at how they can utilize social media or, or other media platforms to kind of engage their uh, people together and to keep them connected as a community. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, talk in the in the language and and use the genres of the day. Uh, well, and that goes back to the very beginnings of the Christian movement. You know, in the early Christian period, it's like use use the vernacular language, talk to people where they're at, and that's how you're going to share the gospel message. Um, that and that's always been the the evangelistic progress project ever since the very beginning when Christ says, you know, go to, go ye to all the world and preach to everyone. And that uh, evangelicals take that seriously. So one other thing I have to talk about, because this came up on a recent episode where we talked about radio and the movies, there was a movie in 1950, and I think it's called The Next Voice, the next you, voice hear. you Hear. Yep. The next voice have you, you hear. seen that? I have seen that. I, 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 I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I watched it early on in my research because, um, yeah, it's a fascinating one. So it, it's in the 50s and it's in the, you know, the, the, the time period in which there are televisions. But uh, somehow, magically, although you never hear it in the movie, the voice of God speaks from radio receivers kind of startling everyone and surprising them and bringing the whole world together in a kind of like kumbaya of, uh, you know, ecumenical um, interconnection and uh, which is pretty fascinating because that's would be a very kind of national council of churches way of looking at, at Christ's voice um, and I, I I think fundamentalists might um, 
I, I don't know how comfortable they'd be with yeah. that message. Which, yeah, it's, it's kind like, of interesting. Maybe that's why they uh, cut away from the voice of God right. in that in that movie, which was also uh, from the trailer uh, a comedy or a lighthearted fair. It's a family yeah. movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whole, very wholesome, wholesome entertainment. Yeah, yeah, but wholesome, but kind of like. Um, uh, kind of flattening of religious differences, right? It's like, can't we all just get along religious messaging, mm. which uh, in the 1950s, fundamentalists were not all about that. They oh, were about, like, uh, uh, you know, if you look at somebody on the farther right, like Carl McIntyre or other religious broadcasters, they were like, the world is super wicked. We have to draw back even further. So in my work, I talk about Billy Graham as being a really important transitional figure in this um, and in kind of taking the messaging of the fundamentalist end of the spectrum and making it palatable to uh, a more a, a broader audience and a radio uh, that, audience. Yeah, exactly. Well, radio and then later television, of yeah. course. Um, and and so he's he, the the fact that he's uh, his ministry coincides with a movie like the next voice you hear is it's not coincidental. Wow, so that's really interesting. Um, we did not we did not have that in our mind when we talked about the next voice you hear a couple of weeks ago that it would have been in opposition to the reality of, of uh, God and the radio being um, diverse and having different versions of God at, uh, at odds with one another. Yeah. It, well, and it's funny because, um, you know, looking at it, I was looking at it just from a cultural 1950 perspective. I was, I was just thinking this is the era of McCarthy yeah. and, and so it's interesting that this voice was heard over every radio mm-hmm. in in the world, the entire world right, heard got at the same time every Russia. night. It's like the ultimate in sustaining time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it's a very fascinating movie. Um, and so also in 1950, kind of back to radio drama, that's when this radio drama Unshackled began at the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. Which, wow. Yeah, and they continue to do these live, well, probably not right now, under under COVID-19 conditions, but they've been recording these live radio dramas every week since then. For 70 and years. Tales of, fascinating. Tales of redemption, real-life tales of redemption. Huh. And, and so people send in these stories of you know, their lives and, you know, the drinking and the drugging and the gambling and, you know, these very very salacious stories actually. And then how they found religion and were saved. And then they have, you know, these real actors um, who, who perform on stage in front of an audience at the mission Hmm. and it's recorded. So it's recorded and edited for airplay. And it's, it's so funny because Jennifer and I have been friends for a long time, but I, I also would listen to this show so many years ago now. 15 years ago, they had a presence online back when it was a, a big deal to have a radio show that you could stream on the internet prior to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what was, what's the, I can't remember the name of the show, Jennifer? Unshackled. Unshackled. Unshackled had a website that you could stream the episodes in real audio form. Uh, way back in the the beginning of the 21st century, so that's a uh, so there you go. There. That's really yeah, yeah. really forward looking. Yeah, podcasts. well, it, I mean, it really touches on on everything that you've been telling us about Amy Semple McPherson too. That I it it seems like a lot of these religious 
uh, broadcasters have been really savvy about, you know, I, I visited Family Radio also, and they had a mm. massive room full of cassette tapes, you know, that they would send around the world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. religious uh, pamphlets that have been translated into mm-hmm. every imaginable language. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And that's the, so, and that, that also brings up ways that, that, uh, people of faith continue to just really have great creativity in thinking about how to take an existing genre like the testimonial um, or the conversion narrative and reinventing it uh, for the, you know, in in new ways for the podcast and the digital age. Did Amy Semple McPherson talk about her life that way? Yeah, for sure. She would, um, not only would she weave that into her sermons uh, periodically, but single motherness. Yeah, her her struggles, uh, her her um, early uh, decision to become an evangelist, um, and and the the calling that she felt that God had laid on her heart, and so on. One of the things she would do is she would every year on her birthday she would preach a birthday sermon that would recount her life story, huh. and so which is pretty interesting that she would, um, you know, kind of deliberately even after the the disappearance scandal that she would call people's attention to the details of her life. Well, and because her story, again, if, if, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm putting too much on it, but like a woman, a, a, a single mom who's been married four times. So it's like she's not, she's very accessible to the masses in that way, right? And she's not an elitist in the 1920s. Right. She so that shares, seems like a very right, big she deal. She shares their trials. Me. Yeah. 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 She, she, you know, it's, it's a very much a bootstrap kind of rags to riches. Uh, narrative, How funny. and that's pretty appealing in the in the 30s and 40s, right? As right. we come out of the depression. Did Amy Semple McPherson ride a motorcycle into her church on the radio? No, my um, my uh, <laughs> looking at as one of these illustrated sermons. Apparently, she she would sometimes rent props and costumes from the Hollywood studios in order to make these illustrated sermons more memorable. And there was one in which she dressed as a motorcycle cop in order to give people a ticket that they were speeding to hell. But I don't think there was <laughs> actually a motorcycle being driven. I don't think the motorcycle it it, it was there as a prop. I don't think she actually rode okay, it. Okay, that's apocryphal, yeah. but wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yes, right. it's in the movie anyway. We put it in the movie <laughs> yeah. anyway. I just watched the yeah. movie Rocket Man, which is the it's all apocryphal the the, the apocryphal version of Elton John's life story. Mm-hmm. And it seems like mm-hmm. that's a good way to tell a to tell a bigger than life life story is just to to let all of the to let all of the fantasy in. Um, but um, <laughs> oh wait, there was oh I, this is ridiculously fiddly. But uh, so. Did she broadcast radio from the pulpit of the church or did she have a separate studio? Yeah, both. She had um, the, the there were microphones in the auditorium um, that both mic'd her. She had this kind of like red velvet throne chair that, that had a microphone near it. And there were also microphones to pick up the choir and the choir lofts. Um, and then there uh, there was a separate studio called the, she called it the gray studio. It was like muffled with curtains and was like, a you know, kind of a pleasant yeah. room to be in. And so, yeah, so there was a studio upstairs, but also she could broadcast from both the auditorium and the baptistry. And so so the live the live audience in her church would would be the live yeah. radio audience. And how was yeah. that? Could, I'm sure you could hear them in the background yeah. and everything. Yeah, and that's yeah. not. And with those, that's not were those entirely. Studios, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, and do you, were those studios continuing to be used throughout the lifetime of that station? Do you know? 
I would guess so. I, I don't know. I don't I don't I didn't look into much of what happened with KFSG uh, after she passed in 1944. But um, again, that the station was on the air. Um, uh, first as an AM and then as an FM station until 2003. So um, I'm sure they modified the building and and added on as they grew over the years. But um, it, it, you know, hers hers kicked it off. Just amazing. Yeah, yep. I just want to know more about radio studios in the 20s because I'm assuming that that her <laughs> that her that the setup, the technical setup of microphones on a stage in front of a giant. Uh, auditorium of people is not not unique maybe even not unique to christian radio at the time but i don't but but yeah i think it took some doing right to get it right and there was apparently also a a telephone underneath her chair that connected to the studio and so she could um kind of like you know uh give uh feedback or could get instructions like they were able to communicate back and forth and in fact that's one of the reasons if we want to return to the salacious details that's one of the reasons why people thought she was having an affair with the radio engineer because their conversations could be um you know weren't entirely private on that line people thought that they seemed a little familiar yeah but of course they are because they work together i love it so (laughs) yes maybe they had an affair and that's why amy seppel mcpherson disappeared but also i mean if you're going to make up a story about a character who you're obsessed with, about a, about a celebrity, like why wouldn't you include the other person that you know they have a relationship with? Right. right? I'm just thinking about fan <laughs> right, culture right. The person, in the, in right, the 21st the person century. That they have, yeah. 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 And I would, I yeah. would ship those two people. Uh, I would just make up the story for them. Right. But we don't and know. Is, it true that, is it true that there was a, mus- a musical based on her life? Uh, that I don't know. Fun. I thought I saw a reference to that. Well, if, well, you, find we, out, if you find out, let me know. I'll let you know. Yeah. Well, have we exact? We could yeah. talk to you for hours, but we probably have. Um, we probably have taken more of your time than we should. I have. I have one last question, though, Tona. Uh, what you said you've changed. You've changed. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, areas of interest. What What have you moved on to? So what I'm working on now um, has kind of not a lot to uh, to do. I used to, when I began this project, I was super interested in the intersection of media, religion, and culture. And so I was looking for like things that connected all three of those things together. Um, and that brought me to look more generally at the, uh, what I call the performance of religion in the public sphere and at lived religion and at uh, kind of religious messaging and, and re- ways that organizations position themselves in the religious landscape. So one of the things, one of the projects I'm currently working on is looking at Um, the origins of segregation academies, which were white schools that were founded in the wake of the civil rights uh, movement and the Brown versus Board of Education decision, white private academies um, in order to preserve segregation by removing white, uh, voluntarily removing white students from the public schools. And many of those position themselves or advertise themselves as Christian academies. So that's interesting to me. And I'm kind of pursuing that uh, and it, it grows ever more timely as I keep working on it um, it just seems even more important to return to the uh, to the story of the civil rights movement um, especially the parts of it that we're less familiar with wow that's that's amazing and that has me thinking about like that's that's one area where kind of unofficial segregation continues to exist is in the oh, schools and people people don't often speak to it like you'll hear about, you know, people 
you know, choosing to go to a certain school and they don't talk about, you know, some of the, the components of who attends the school that they don't want to go to. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Right. So that retreat into privatized spaces instead of, you know, uh, genuine funding and support for public schools is, is a piece of that story. And there's, um, I believe, a really important religious component to it that I'm trying to explore in my current work. That sounds fascinating and very important work, too. So thank definitely you. Definitely keep us posted. Not sure of the radio angle, but like personally, that's a very well, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> there, might, there might be a radio angle. If there, if there is, it would be fun because um, I cer- certainly enjoyed working with radio sources and working with the community of people who preserve religious um, radio and sound archives. And that world of um, collectors and archivists that I know that is such an uh, such a um, focus of Radio Survivor, uh, that world was pretty fun to be part of for the years that I was actively researching the book. Wow. Neat. All right. I agree. It's a very, it's a very cool group. And I, I love being able to intersect, intersect with radio scholars, radio archivists and collectors. Um, it's yeah. People who are really passionate about, about these materials and so many hidden gems and exciting quests to find things in the archives. So yeah, I agree and there's, with there's, you on that. Plenty more to discover. So, uh, radio scholars just keep at it because uh, we still haven't exhausted all the possibilities for talking even about early radio. Well, Tona, thanks for sticking around with us for the for the bonus episode. Yeah, I believe. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, was, all right. I, we had a. I had a wonderful time talking with you today. Thank you for sharing your time. Thank you. It was such a pleasure thanks. to be a guest. I appreciate it. Thanks.